You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. God is awesome in this place. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Are you ready to hear from the Word of God today? Are you ready to hear from Him? Are, are, are you ready to have ears to hear and eyes to see? And if you are, are you ready to actually take what you learn and to put it into practice? Are you willing to live it out and so be asking that today. Um, attending church cannot just be something that we do uh, to fill up a time slot, to fulfill our religious duties or whatever it is, nor can it be something that we can take or leave. And I fear a lot of times that it is something that we can take or leave. Uh, I don't want to uh, go today or I don't want to uh, log in and, and watch it today. And it's something that we can take or leave. Uh, and I want to encourage you not to do that uh, my hope is that every time this book is opened, read, and explained, that you are attentive, that you are immersed in these things, that you're on the edge of your seat, so to speak, uh, thinking uh, and, and praying, God, do something today. I need to hear from you today. These things are your only true guide for life and godliness, and therefore, they are the, really, the Word of God is the only true uh, source of joy in our lives. The world offers a lot of things, but they can never promise true and lasting joy. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 16, this is the very word of God. Uh, Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This ends the reading of God's word today. Let's look to him for prayer. Father, I pray that you would empower me today. I pray, God, um, that you would bring by your Holy Spirit conviction where conviction needs to be brought. I pray that you bring salvation where salvation needs to be brought, Lord. Um, I pray, God, that you would work powerfully through your word. Um, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would just work, transform us into the people that you've called us to be. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In uh, the culture that we live in, which is absolutely obs uh, obsessed with entertainment, at times it can be tr uh, hard to uh, distinguish between what uh, truth uh, is, what reality is, uh, from uh, what is not reality. Uh, as an example, what, what I mean is I'm sure that most of us have seen a movie or a TV show where the acting has just been so superb uh, that you just got caught up in the story. Um, maybe it's a new actor that's come on the scene and he's uh, playing a role as the sensitive boyfriend or the sensitive husband or, or father, and he's so good at this role, so believing, 
uh, so convincing that, you know, the, the women in the show are just crying. They're nudging their boyfriends or husbands and saying, why can't you be more like him and stuff like that? And it, it's just it's so convincing. And then what happens uh, sometimes is that four, five, six months down the road, this actor is seen on TV because he's been arrested, right? He's been arrested for drunk driving or for drug possession or for disorderly conduct or maybe even for domestic violence. And there's that disconnect thinking, no, he was so nice. He, he was so kind. Like, I, I loved him. And the truth of the matter is that you didn't love him. He was an actor acting, right? And that's what he was supposed to do. It, it, his, his life on the screen does not need to reflect his life uh, in real life. Now, that can be disconcerting for some, but it's even more disconcerting when it falls into real life. How many times have you, we heard horrific stories about serial killers, right, who, um, when it comes out, no one expected it. They're just like, I, I don't understand. This guy just seemed like to be the model husband or the model father or the model citizen. Like, I, I didn't understand what, uh, how that could have happened. Or, um, Think about people who have are in positions of leadership when they, when, when some uh, crime is exposed in their life, the influence that they have. When I was a youth pastor in St. Louis, it didn't seem like a, a year went by where there wasn't some youth pastor who was being exposed in the, in the news. He was, he was being arrested because he had an inappropriate relationship with one of his students. And it's just, it brings such reproach on the name of Christ. Or think about maybe a, a pastor. I know that uh, it often comes out in the news about a senior pastor who's been involved in a longstanding affair with, with someone uh, in the church. And he gets up on the pulpit every Sunday and preaches the word of God and, and calls the people uh, to obedience. And yet he's not living it out himself. These kinds of hypocrisy bring great uh, do great damage to the cause of Christ. They bring reproach on his church and on his name. And in this passage today, Paul is urging Timothy to make sure that his life reflects his teaching. That his life reflects his teaching. And so it is with us. Since our lives really reflect what we believe, we must live in a way that is consistent with the gospel. You and I, as followers of Jesus, must live in such a way that is consistent with the gospel. Now, Paul is directing these comments towards Timothy, who is a leader in the church. So you might be tempted to say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. But what we've been saying all along is, yes, all these things apply to you as well. You, as we're going to see, as we already read, you are to be a, an, an example to other people as well. You are to recognize and use your spiritual gifts. You are to immerse yourselves in these things. There's, it's not, oh, those are the leaders. I don't need to do these. No, we're all called to do these. So we'll bounce back and forth between talking to leaders and then also talking to uh, the, uh, anyone who is a member of the church, anyone who is a Christian. So Paul begins, let's jump right in. Paul begins by saying, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. That's important. Because Paul is not saying, suggest and mention these things. Suggest and mention these things. No, these are not suggestions when we open the Word of God. These are not options for the church. Okay? 
These things that Paul is talking about regarding how members are to conduct themselves in uh, the church are non-negotiable. They are non-negotiable. They must be taught. They must be taught often and they must be followed. They must be put into practice. And the teacher needs to keep teaching and teaching and teaching until the people get it and the people are putting them into practice. So these things are absolutely essential. I think there's a huge problem in the church today because what we tend to do is we tend to pick and choose what we want to follow in the scriptures. We pick and choose what we want to follow. If it fits our lifestyle, sweet. I'm going to go for it. If it doesn't, then we either ignore it or we explain it away, right? Well, that was for that time. Well, this is the culture that we live in now that doesn't necessarily apply to us. And then some people might think, you know what? I'm doing good with 70 to 75% of the stuff in the Bible. If I just ignore that 20, 25%, is it really that big of a deal? Like, I'm doing really good in these other areas. Do I really need to follow everything? And the command, the, the word that comes from Paul and the rest of the writers of Scripture is yes, yes, yes. You need to follow it all, 100%. Remember, we just sang, I surrender what? 70% of my life, right? No, I surrender all, all. Your life because of what Jesus did, because he purchased you, Paul says this, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies, which are God's bodies, which means that your eyes no longer belong to you, so you can't look at what you want to look at. Your hands no longer belong to you, so you can't do with them what you want to do. Your feet no longer belong to you, so that you can't go where you want to go. You go where God is calling you to go. And if it's sin, I'm going to tell you what, God will never walk you into sin, right? God will never call you to look at something that is sinful, to listen to things that are sinful. You do not own your body, okay? So Timothy's job was to stand with authority before these people and not say, it would be really nice if you did this. No, his job was to say, you must do this. If you're in the family of God, if you claim to be owned by Jesus, this is how you are to conduct yourself in his household. You're to reflect his character and not your old way of life. So what Paul writes next in our passage, after he talks about command uh, and teach these things, um, implies that this is going to be very difficult for Timothy where he is. Uh, people are not going to take Timothy seriously because he's young. He's young. Paul says this, let no one despise you for your youth. To despise means to think lightly of. Um, Timothy was probably at this time in his mid-30s, which is not too young, but compared to the older guys that would be in the church, he would have been considered like just a child. And who wants to take instruction from a child, right? Who wants to take instruction from a young person? Well, very often young people do not command respect. Uh, they do not command um, authority uh, in the eyes of other people. They are looked down upon because they lack experience. They lack like life experience. And the tendency, therefore, is to take them lightly, to take them lightly and what they say lightly as well. But Timothy is not to let others take him lightly because Timothy 
is coming in the authority of the Apostle Paul, who came in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his church. Jesus is giving his commands to Paul, who is passing them along to Timothy, who is to pass them along. So Timothy can say, if you've got a problem with me, take it up with Jesus, right? This is his church. These are his instructions. And so he's coming with that authority. Let's talk about Timothy for a second. I don't know if, how much you know about him. But as I look at this, Timothy didn't ask for this. Okay? He didn't ask for this. It wasn't like the church in Ephesus was saying, please, please send us Timothy. We want Timothy to come here and instruct us. No, they weren't asking for him. And neither was Timothy. Timothy was not like, sweet, I want to go to Ephesus. This is what I want to do. In fact, in the opening verses of this letter that Paul is writing in 1 Timothy, here's what he says. Uh, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul is getting ready to go to Macedonia. I don't know if Timothy was expecting maybe to join him, but Paul's like, hey, you stay right where you are in Ephesus. And Timothy's like, excuse me? Excuse me? Me? Young me, you want me to stay here and you want me to instruct these other people who are much older than me, who are teaching some very sophisticated false doctrine? You want me to combat that? And Paul's simple answer was, yes, I want you to remain on and I want you to instruct them. From all indications, Timothy was timid by nature, certainly in part because of his youth. Timothy was not a take charge kind of guy. We know this because Paul's second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, he says this, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he's writing these things. The implication is, Timothy, you're afraid. You're timid right now. God has not given us a spirit of fear. These people would have a hard time listening to Timothy and taking him serious. So in addition... In addition to him teaching them and instructing them, Timothy was to set an example before them. Timothy was to speak with authority and then allow his life to back up his teaching. Okay, Paul continues in verse 12. He says this, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity talked about this guy a couple of weeks ago, but uh, the Reformed uh, pastor Richard Baxter in the 17th century writing, he wrote a book called the, um, the Reformed Pastor, and in it he is warning the pastors of his day to be careful that they're not hypocritical, to be careful that what they are saying on Sunday, they're actually living out on Monday and the rest of the week. And here's just a small excerpt from it. He says this, take heed to yourselves lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hindrance of the success of your own labors, end quote. Timothy was to set an example for the rest of the believers in five main areas. The first one is in his speech. Timothy was to set an example by the way he talked. I don't believe that Paul here is talking about his preaching or his teaching. I mean, that's covered elsewhere. 
Obviously, he needs to be an example there. I'm talking that this is about his day-to-day life. When he's inside the church and when he's outside of the church. When he's in the marketplace, wherever he is, he is to set an example by the way that he talks. Years ago, I had a friend, I I knew a, a pastor of a church who was one of the most biblically sound people that I have ever met. Um, He could defend the scriptures up and down when he preached. He preached with authority. Um, When he led a Bible study or a Sunday school, I mean, you you couldn't find anything wrong with what he was saying. It was just solid, solid biblical teaching. And yet outside of those environments of the preaching and the Bible studies and the Sunday school, I can't remember a time when when the name of Christ was on his lips. It was every other subject besides Jesus. Um, It was like a disconnect. And then in addition to that, um, it wasn't very uncommon for him to use the F word in his language. Uh, And to me, it was so confusing. It was such a disconnect because I'm thinking, wait a second, like your language, what you're saying with your speech right now outside of the, you know, the church setting is so contrary to what the Old Testament and the New Testament says that we're to do with our tongue, with our, with our mouth. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And, and tons of things. But it was a, just a, a disconnect. He was not setting an example for the rest of the believers in the way that he talked outside of church. I, as a leader in this church, must guard what I say. I must ensure that my speech on Monday mirrors my speech on Sunday, right? What I'm up here preaching, I better make sure that I'm modeling that the next day and the next day after that as well. And the same is true for you. And so let me ask you a couple questions because you can't just hear this. You have to actually, how does this apply to my life? What do you talk about outside of the walls of the church? What do you talk about when you are miles and miles away from the church setting or from anyone in the church who knows you? Are you gossiping? Are you talking about others behind their back? Are you making fun of people? Are you using the language of the world? If you do, then you're not setting an example. You're not setting an example of who Christ is in your speech You're not setting an example to other believers nor to the unbelieving world that is watching, that's listening to us. Your words and my words are to reflect the character and the speech of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our master. God is our father. We should talk like God would talk. Second example that Timothy, the second area that Timothy is to set an example is in his conduct in his conduct, how he conducts himself. Not only were his words to match the character and speech of Christ, his actions were to do that as well. The tendency for us as fallen creatures, whether we are Christians or non-Christians, is to play the chameleon, to uh, reflect the current company that we're in. I'm in church. I'm going to put on my church face. I'm going to talk church lingo. I'm going to use church language, and, and then tomorrow when I'm in the office, I'm going to talk like they do. On Friday night, I'm going to party like they do. And so we adapt to whatever situation we're in. And very often our conduct does not reflect Christ's conduct. Some may party like 
the world. Some may lie like the world to cover up mistakes. Others may lust after everything that they see. This ought not to be. You know that as a pastor, if you've been here for any length of time or listened to me, you know that I like to be transparent. I like to make sure that I'm not talking down to you, but saying, hey, I struggle just like you struggle. And um, the closer you get to me, the more uh, you know uh, the things that I struggle with because we all struggle. Uh, one of my areas that I've struggled with all my life is a, having a really competitive spirit. Um, yeah, um, I am really, really competitive. I hate to lose. Um, I hate to see my kids lose. If my kids are losing in a game, then it's obviously the ref's fault. And so I am yelling at the ref. Um, I may have gotten kicked out of a soccer game once um, in my early 20s and may have gotten kicked out of a basketball game um, in the last five years. But here's the, here's the point. That's not something that reflects the character of Jesus, right? And if I am sitting there preaching on Sunday and then yelling at a ref on Friday, my conduct is not matching what I'm preaching. And can you imagine, like if you showed up to that game and you're like, that's my pastor, right? <laughs> that's the guy who preaches every Sunday. Or someone's like, isn't that the pastor at Galveston Bible Church? Isn't that the guy who delivers the message? I have to be very, very careful. And I can't use the excuse, well, oh, that's just how I am. No, no. Sin is sin, and it needs to be called out. Now, I'm very thankful that I've made great strides uh, in the last couple of years, but I still live in the flesh, and when Jesus comes back, I will not have that competitive spirit anymore. So, um, but I don't set an example. I, 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 uh, there's times, like I said, I'm doing a lot better, but there's times when I fail to set an example, and Paul is saying, you need to set an example. Once again, pulling in Richard Baxter, what I'm doing in those moments when I give in is I am unsaying with my life what I said with my words. Love people unless he made a bad call, right? And so I'm undoing that. So let me ask you, how are you doing in this area? Are you setting a godly example for others to follow? If someone were to see you outside of the walls of this church, I mean, we're talking 10, 15, 20, 100 miles away, would they see you reflecting the character of Christ? Would they say that is a good example? Or would they say, he's indistinguishable from the world. She's indistinguishable from the world. I mean, she talks just like the rest of the people around them. We need to set an example in our speech and our conduct. The third area where Paul uh, tells Timothy that he needs to set an example is in his love. Love is that self-sacrificial attitude that prefers others above ourselves. Love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is patient. It's kind. It is not jealous. It does not boast. It does not have a tally of, uh, of wrongs that people have done against it. It's not like, oh, yep, she did it again. I'll remember that. I got it locked away in my mind. Love does not do that. There's many other things that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Timothy is to exemplify these things of what it means to be loving. Just taking those first two. Love is patient. Love is kind. Timothy is to be an example of someone who can be wronged over and over and over again to have it in his power to retaliate, but to never do so. 
Timothy is to be an example of someone who wakes up in the morning and says, how can I make this person's life just a little bit easier? What can I do to lift their burden today? What kind of act can I do to make life easier for them? Timothy is to be an example, to set an example of what a loving person is. Let me ask you again, are you setting an example of what it means to be a loving person? Are you patient when people wrong you? People say something nasty about you or they're mean. Are you patient or are you ready to, you know, to fight? Do you go out of your way to seek opportunities to make the lives of those around you easier? Do you forgive and forget or do you hold a grudge? Are you in it for the long haul or are you ready to desert people as soon as they offend you? I'm done with you. We as Christians need to reflect the character of our Lord. We are to be examples of love. A fourth area that where Timothy is to set an example is in his faithfulness. In his faithfulness. Faithfulness is that unwavering uh, commitment to God and to his mission. It is a, a push ahead for truth undeterred. Doesn't matter how difficult it goes, I'm going to be faithful to the mission. Man, I'm getting beat up. Man, this is hard. But I've been called. I've been called and adopted into the family of God and I'm going to represent him. And so it's that push, that push. And finally, Timothy is to set an example in his purity. In his purity. This refers to sexual purity. In a sex-saturated culture, Timothy was to remain sexually pure. So how are you doing in these last two areas? Are you unwavering in your commitment to God and to his mission? Are you undeterred in, in speaking the truth and getting the message out there? Or, are, or do you abandon his mission when things get tough? When things don't go your way? When his commands don't fit your lifestyle? Are you sexually pure, both physically and mentally? Or are you violating God's commands in these areas? That is where Timothy was to set examples in these five areas. As we move into chapter, or verse 13, as we move along, verse 13, in my opinion, really explains why. It answers the question of why we spend so much time preaching the word on a Sunday morning. Why the majority of the things that go on outside of this church, regarding this church, are Bible studies. Because the preaching of the word is absolutely essential. Is absolutely essential. Paul says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The simple reading of scripture was absolutely essential, especially in the first century. And it was essential in the first century because today, in most of these chairs, there's a Bible. In my office, I probably have about 15, 20 different Bibles. At home, I probably have another half a dozen Bibles. On my phone, I have at least 10 Bibles. I have three audio versions of the Bible on my phone that I can hit a button and the Bible will talk to me. Okay, we have Bibles everywhere. We're about to go on vacation uh, in a couple hours. We'll probably stay at a hotel and we'll open a drawer and there will be a Bible in there. Bibles are everywhere. In the first century, wasn't the case. They didn't have their personal copy of the Bible. 
there was one copy usually per community and it was in the synagogue. So if they wanted to hear the word of God, they would have to go and listen to it read. And that's what they would do. They would go to synagogue and the word of God would be read and then it would be explained. The rabbi would get up there and the rabbi would say, this is what the scriptures say. And usually in the, uh, before Christ came, it would involve the reading of the Old Testament scriptures. After Christ came, then it would include also the doctrines of the apostles, what they were teaching at the moment. As their letters started to become circulated, then those would be included in the readings as well in the worship services. The rabbi was the one who read it and then explained its meaning so that people could understand it and apply it. It's not just getting up there and saying, this is what it says, have a good day. It's getting up there, reading it, explaining it, and saying, now what will you do as a result of this? I was talking to someone this past week and just talking about basic Bible study. And one of the basic Bible studies that you can do is this. You read a passage and you say, the first question you ask is, what do I learn about God from this passage? And the second question is, what is God asking me to do? What is God calling me to do as a result of what I've just learned about him? It's not enough to just hear something about God. You have to put it into practice. After all, Jesus said, quoting, Moses, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And this is what Jesus did in Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4. Uh, and he is a guest rabbi in the uh, synagogue. Uh, and he gets up and he is going to read and explain. And here's what it says. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And I can imagine it was just as quiet then as it is in here right now. What's he going to say? What does this mean? And Jesus says this, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. No one had ever said that, right? I would never get up here and say, Hey, this, it's me. That's who he's talking about now. Jesus says, it was fulfilled in your hearing today. He's saying, it's about me. And in fact, all of the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus. They're all from Genesis all the way to Malachi. It's all about Jesus. And the New Testament is obviously about Jesus. Do you realize that the Old Testament is not about uh, Daniel and how great he was, or Moses and how great he was, or Joseph and how faithful he was? No, it's not about those guys. God himself is the hero of every story. Daniel would have been eaten by the lions unless God showed up, right? The children of Israel would have been wiped out by the Egyptians unless 
God showed up. It's not about them. It's about God. It's about Jesus coming into the world. So Jesus, his first text and his first explanation is, it's, yeah, it's about me. It's all about me. More than anything, the world needs Jesus. More than anything, you need Jesus. There's never a time in your life where you're like, ah, yeah, I've had my dose of Jesus. Now I'm going to go on. No, you always need Jesus. The person who has lost all hope in this life needs to know that Jesus brings hope and that the sufferings of this present world cannot compare to the glory that's to be revealed to us one day because of what Jesus has done. The person who has no friends in this world needs to know that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer to the brother. Jesus will never leave or forsake you. The person who thirsts, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the person who looks at their life and says, oh, wretched man that I am, I still sin. I continue to sin. I continue to sin. I'm evil. I want to be better. I want to be righteous. Needs to know that Jesus is your righteousness. That you can never live the life. You can never live a life that will please God in and of yourself. It's Jesus who lived that life for you. And then his life, when you believe in him, is given to you so that God sees you as perfect. The world needs to know that because we sink in our guilt. I'm so horrible. I'm so bad. I'm so evil. The person who has lost their way and is seeking for purpose, I don't even know why I'm here. There's no meaning to life, needs to know that Jesus is the way. The person who turns on the news and says, I don't even know what's true anymore. I hear this side saying this. I hear this side saying this. I hear this political party saying this. And this political party saying this. And I hear this Christian church say this. And I say this. And I see this cult saying this. And I hear all this. That person needs to know that Jesus is the truth. And the person who's just got the diagnosis of cancer, terminal, needs to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And even though you may lose your life, if you believe in Jesus, you will live again. You will be resurrected in a body which will no longer be subject to death or disease or depression or anything like that. Jesus is everything. And the question is, do you believe that? We say it with our mouths, but do our lives reflect that? Is it evident? Could your neighbor say, yep? Jesus is everything to that person. Well, we should believe it, and we should be telling everyone about it. Well, moving on, Paul next exhorts Timothy in verse 14. He says this, Do not neglect the gift that you have. Do not neglect the gift that you have. Timothy was given a spiritual gift when he became a Christian. Timothy's gifts were teaching and evangelism. And what Paul is saying is this, Timothy, you've been given a gift. You need to recognize that gift. You need to develop that gift. And you need to use that gift. Timothy was to study the scriptures diligently. Timothy was to look for opportunities to instruct other people in the word of God. Hey, I need to talk to you. I love the example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is preaching the word of God. And then he is put in jail. And while he's in jail, it was a little different than our situation. He was chained to a Roman guard for the whole day, but they would switch shifts. So one guy would be chained to him for six hours, then he would go, and then another guy was chained to Paul. And what does Paul do? New guy here. Hey, what's your name? Let me tell you about 
Jesus, right? And so what he was just preaching the gospel to everyone, they couldn't go anywhere, right? They were chained to him. And as a result, the Roman guards started to become Christians. People in Caesar's household started to become Christians because Paul was preaching the word. That was his gift. Timothy is to use his gifts. He is an evangelist. He's to look for every opportunity to share the gospel with other people. And just like Timothy was given a gift, if you are a Christian today, you have been given a gift as well and probably multiple gifts. Your responsibility is to discover what that gift is, develop that gift, and use it for the building up of the rest of the church for the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, if you have your Bibles and you want to, turn to Romans chapter 12. Because some people might look at that and themselves and say, no, I don't have a gift. I don't have a gift. I don't have anything. I'm not useful in the church at all. And if that's the case, then you're not a Christian. I'll just say that. Because the Bible says that if you are a Christian, you have been given a gift to be used in the church. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse uh, 4, Here's what Paul says. He uses one of his, one of the examples that he loves the most illustration, a body. He says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, sh who uh, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You have a gift. Use it. Your duty is to discover what that gift is and to use that gift. To fail to recognize your gift and to use it in the church is disobedience, plain and simple. And what happens is that you hinder the rest of the body because God has so composed the body, placing people in there so that they know what their gifts are and they're using those gifts. So if one member of the body is not functioning, it hinders the body. Can you imagine if you walk out of here today and your right arm just stops functioning or your right leg stops functioning? Do you think that would affect your day? You bet it would, right? I want to play soccer. Can't do that. My right leg just doesn't want to do anything today. You need to use your gifts. If you're not using your gifts, you're like that limp arm. You're like the eyes that don't see. You're not functioning and you're hindering the mission of the church because my body all works together. My kidneys and my heart and my lungs and my hands and my feet all work together for one purpose. And that's what the church does as well. You have a gift. Discover it and use it. And so let me just ask you just quickly, do you know what your gift is? If you can't answer that question and yet you believe you're a believer, then you need to find someone and say, help me discover what my gift is because I don't want to be disobedient. God has placed me here. I want to use, I want to be used in this church. I want to be used in his kingdom. Finally, in closing, uh, Paul closes out this section with a list of exhortations for Timothy and us to follow. He says this in verse 15 and 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. 
Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. To practice means to consider, to ponder, um, so as to be able to perform well. What you are thinking, what you're doing is you're thinking, okay, what has God called me for? What, how do I set an example? Am I setting an example? And you're pondering that and you're saying, I need, I, I, I need, to, I need to do better. I need, to, I, I need to exercise my gifts. I need, to, I need to set an example. The things of God should be consuming our thoughts as you think about them over and over again, desiring to put them into practice, not for your salvation, but to please the one who has called you. The word immerse that's used here literally means to be. The word immerse means to be. And I believe that the idea is that you do these things so much that you, they actually become part of you. You actually start to be identified with them. These things, godly speech and conduct and love and faith and purity, the exercise of your gifts become such a part of you that people identify you with them. To the point where someone says this, oh, you want to know what love is? You need to watch her. Oh, you want to know what service is? You need to watch him. You want a definition of service? Follow this guy around for a week and you'll have your definition of what service is. You're identified with it. It's a part of you. It's not something that you're trying to put on a face on. It's just who you are because you've been transformed by Christ. So once again, let me ask you, does this characterize you? Do these things, this godly conduct and speech and these things, do they characterize you? Are you immersed in the things of God so that you start to reflect his character? And I was just to say, if not, then begin to just get into his word again. Meditate on it. I love what one author said. One author said, marinate in it. And I love that. If you've ever marinated meat, right? Meat smells like something before you put it in the marinade. And as it's soaking in the marinade, it starts to smell like that. Marinate in the word until you start to smell like the word. The Bible says a fragrant aroma, right? Pleasing to God. That's what you're doing. You start to take on the characteristics of God because you're always in his word. You're always saying, how does my father act? How does the Lord Jesus Christ act? This is what I want to do. Let it be absorbed into you. Above all, you and I need to keep a close watch on ourselves and what we believe. And so let me ask you, what do you believe? And are you putting those things into practice? Once again, are you being uh, consistent or are you being hypocritical? Do we say that we trust in God and then at the first sign of trouble, we lose all hope in God and we start to panic and we start to um, lose our faith? Do we say that God is the most important thing and yet settle for the things of this world? Do we say that we love our fellow human beings and yet hold a grudge against them? In addition, do we know what sound teaching actually is? There's a lot of churches out there that are claiming to come in the name of Jesus and they're not really preaching the gospel. They're preaching a feel-good message that cannot save. Do we know how to detect error? If we don't, if we don't know what sound doctrine is, if we don't know how to detect error, then we will be prone to slip into error. 
we will be in danger of departing from the faith as we talked about last week. And if we do that, we are thus proving that we were never in the faith. We were never in the faith. Do you realize that the Bible never ever talks in terms of signing a card, walking an aisle, or saying a simple prayer? It never associates that with salvation. In fact, the young man who at the age of 10 walked down the aisle, knelt down, said a prayer, went to Sunday school, and then jettisoned it all later in life and died as an atheist was proving that he was never in the faith. Never in the faith. The proof that you are a Christian is found in your perseverance, in the perseverance. That's the terms that the Bible talks about. A true believer. Mark this. A true believer will stumble. A true believer will fall into sin. A true believer will at times live a hypocritical life and not set an example. I am sure that Timothy, when he got this letter and Paul's like, set a con, set an example, set an example. Timothy's like, <gasps> overwhelmed. And I'm sure that Timothy fell over and over and over again. We're all subject to sin. You read Romans 7. Paul's like, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things that I know I need to do, I don't do. O wretched man that I am. But in the end, the true believer will return to God because it is not them who's trying desperately to hold on to God. It is God who is holding on to them. It is God who is holding on to you. So the message, if you hear today, I need to try harder. I need to go out of here and I need to try harder. No. What you need to do is you need to rest in what Jesus has done. You need to rest in that. You're not trying to impress God. What you're doing is you're saying, God, wow, you've done so much for me. I was a wretched sinner. I am a wretched sinner. And yet, even when I was an enemy of yours, you saved me. You sent your son. Why in the world would you do that? to live the life that I couldn't. And then he was punished for everything that I did. Lord, teach me. Help me to please you in everything that I do, to reflect your character so that other people can know exactly what you have done. I think of, of Peter. Talk about sinning. Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. He denied it. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan has per requested permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. That when you return, strengthen the brothers. I love that, right? We fall into sin. What do we do? Do we just get discouraged and say, ah, forget it. I'm never going to get it. No, we learn from that. And we even tell other people, hey, I sinned in this way. And guess what God did? He forgave me. What, God forgives you for that? Yes, God can forgive you even for that. There's so many people like, there's no way God could forgive me. And the message is, yes, he can and he will. If I do not keep a close watch on myself and, my, and what I teach, then I will lead you all into error. But as I persist in these things, as I teach them, as I'm living them out myself, I ensure that the preaching that I do is the true gospel. And the true gospel is the only gospel that can save. It's the only gospel that has the power to save. So let me just ask you a couple more questions as we close. What are you going to do with what you just learned today? What are you going to do with what you just learned today? Are you going to file it away and say, oh, I'll, I'll think about that at some point? Or are you going to conclude, oh, 
You don't understand. I am so far gone. I have done these same sins for years and years. There's no hope for me at all. Or are you going to falsely conclude that, oh, I need to try harder. I need to do this in my own power. Please don't do that. You can and you must do these things only in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to do these things because the eternal destiny of our neighbors and our co-workers and our family and our friends and our fellow students are on the line. They need to know Jesus and they need to see, they need to hear us proclaiming him and then us reflecting his character. And I pray that that's what we do for God's glory and the good of Galveston and beyond. Let's pray. Father, I know the enemy is working right now to get us to think about what we're going to eat right now, what we're going to do this afternoon, and tempting us to just forget it all. Forget it all. And so I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that we would reflect your character. We are sorry, Lord, for how we have misrepresented you, how we've made it so much about us and not about you. Lord, how very often we can come and just go through the motions here, singing and talking, and yet our lives don't reflect it. And I pray that we would, and I pray above all that we would realize that there's nothing more beautiful than you being in your presence. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.